0: I want to be sure that I put my little tiny tin cup of knowledge into play under the great cascade of human efforts to bring human development to its next stage for as many children and individuals as possible. That's for me what social justice
1: and literacy is all about. Welcome back readers to part two of my conversation with Dr. Marianne Wolf. READ, the Research, Education, and Advocacy podcast, brings prominent researchers, thought leaders, and educators who will share their work, insights, and expertise about current research and best practices in education and child development. READ is produced by the Windward Institute. I'm your host, Danielle Scarano, the WI's Research and Development Director. In this episode, we invite you to rejoin Tea Time with Dr. Marianne Wolfe so many of you were inspired by Dr. Wolf's story from last episode. And in fact, I engaged with many of you on social media and via email. In this conversation, we dive into Dr. Wolf's leadership as the director of dyslexia, diverse learners, and social justice at UCLA. She discusses her latest work on global literacy and digital reading. Get this, she's both an advocate and a critic of digital reading. Hmm, I guess you'll have to listen more to find out why. At the end of the episode, I asked Dr. Wolf rapid, yet not so rapid fire questions, where she calls for a policy platform toward achieving literacy for all, and she offers inspiration for a brighter, more beautiful, more hopeful educational future. If you want to know more about Dr. Marian Wolf, you can visit her website, marianwolf.com, or read her full bio at readpodcast.org. I couldn't imagine a better beginning of summer than this afternoon tea time with Dr. Marion Wolf. Grab your favorite cup of tea. See you after the episode, readers. Welcome back to Dr. Marion Wolf. It is great to see you. I know we're just continuing our tea time, but welcome back to our readers. You have now rejoined tea time with Dr. Marion Wolf. And in our last episode, Dr. Wolf, you had ended by talking about your work at the forefront of literacy and social justice, which I think leads us to the next part of our conversation really well, where you are now at your leadership, the director of the Center of Dyslexia and Diverse Learners and Social Justice at UCLA. I want to learn more about the center. And it's it's relatively new, right? It opened up right before COVID, correct?
0: Well, it's only two... Oh, the fourth. Poor... In, in a certain sense, it's like it only opened a year ago, but it, it was really two years, but we've lost a full year with COVID. It's a small group of us I have wonderful people I'm working with: Laura Rein, doctors Laura Reinhardt and Doctor Rebecca Gottlieb, and a group of. Graduate and undergraduate students, but our tiny group is connected to people all over the country, whether it's Winward School or the Cox Campus and Latin Speech School, whether it's organizations like IDA or Canadian Children's Literacy or our partners in crime. We're working with the California State University uh, Schools of Education on a wonderful bill that we've helped pass, in which we're re, if you will, expanding how our teachers are learning in our schools of education between California State University and UCLA. And then we're working with our UCSF and Berkeley partners and Hastings Law partners on literacy in prisons and changing juvenile delinquency laws. Our tiny little center is really about a nexus of connections. How can we connect people to each other who are doing great things? And how can, and this is the Margaret Mead, you know, one individual or three individuals or 10 individuals or 100 individuals. We are touching all these lies. And the beauty of getting older, Daniela, for me has been, I know so many people. I just think of Windward and I think of all the people I know there or have known there. And occasionally I will tell someone who asked me, where can I take my child? Well, when, depending on where they are, it will be Windward or it will be at the school or that school. And it's, oh my goodness, when I just even think of New England and all the people like Ben Powers. There's so many wonderful people, and it's connecting them that the Center for Dyslexia, Diverse Learners, and Social Justice is about. And then it's connecting us to the world, too. As you know, part of my work was to help begin something called Curious Learning, a global literacy initiative. And so my colleagues in Boston are totally in charge of that. I am only an advisor now, but I helped co-create it at a moment in time when it was so clear to me that our knowledge was ready to be taken into places where otherwise the kids could never become literate. And we began in Ethiopia, but my colleague Stephanie Gott, Gottwald, and Tinsley Gallian are, spearheading that around the world using actually and here's the preparatory for another part of our talk together they're using a digital platform to take literacy precursors and early literacy apps to children who have no schools no teachers or as in south africa we'll never Mm -hmm. forget a hundred kids in a classroom wow that was something wow But this is all, it's all connected. Daniela, this is the thing. When you work in literacy, you are about
1: connecting people. Right. You talk a lot about connections and you spoke a lot about different issues that you're working on currently related to social justice. And I like how you segued into curious learning and that's with global literacy. When I had looked into your website and on Curious Learning as well. I found a statistic that was absolutely startling. So I want to read it out loud on the podcast so that everyone can hear it. And of course, if you want to learn more information to our readers, you can certainly go to Dr. Marion Wolf's website as well as Curious Learning. But your website cites the, the UN where they estimate that 800 million people around the world are illiterate. And if we could decrease the number by 170 million then we could remove 12% of the world's poverty, 12%. And those numbers are astounding because it's almost unfathomable to actually conceptualize a number of people that lack access to reading. And you talked about the digital platform. So I want to know more, what is this intersection between global literacy, digital reading, and social justice?
0: So, Curious Learning began really almost 10 years ago with a collaboration with people at the MIT Media Lab and Cynthia Brazil, Nicholas Negroponte, Tinsley Galleon, all of them were looking at whether or not, in places where there were no schools, we could take something like an iPad, but a digital device of some sort that was very sturdy. And there had been an experiment, if you will, an initiative called, well, I won't even go to the, I don't want to get into the weeds of the history, but there had been something of a failed experiment or a mixed experiment by Nicholas Negroponte years before. And those tablets were not successful Mm -hmm. and they were not successful because the children didn't know how to read. So he and Cynthia Brazil came to me and said what could we do to change those tablets could we take a tablet that was much better and that was aimed to teach children to read could we do that and show that we can make a difference well then my colleague Stephanie Gottwald and Tinsley Gallion came on board and I was sent actually to Test children in Ethiopia in very while in Chiti uh, these are places really remote 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 villages and we were to see whether the kids could actually learn on these digital devices and they could they could learn up to a certain point and so that was the beginning of the idea that a digital device in whatever native language, the first language the child has could help them learn how to read. And so Stephanie Gottwald, in particular, uh, who is one of my later PhD students, helped create an app called Feed the Monster. And now I think it's translated well over 45 languages, well over 45. And people, the statistic you had actually was an older one from Curious Learning. And when I came to California, I, I'm no longer involved in the daily A work of curious learning, but I will always be um, a cheerleader and and on an advisory board because they are showing that in connection with local organizations, and it has to always have that connection. We can give children an opportunity to learn the precursors and the first elements of learning to read, and then the hope is that that will be the preparation for learning more and more. And I think Curious Learning is really deeply involved in, in working with the World Bank and working with the UN on how we can take these kinds of digital experiences and help those children who do not have those opportunities. And from my standpoint, I have to balance the fact that I am both an advocate of digital technology and a critic. And it's a very, if you will, unusual stance to have, but it is like everything else. It is dependent on the circumstances of the child and the environment, what you do. And I believe that Curious Learning has shown how important educational technology can be used correctly in circumstances where it's most
1: needed. That's a good point. And it's actually to clarify when we're talking about providing the global literacy, particularly with Curious Learning, this digital platform is used to provide access to children who don't have the access to a high quality teacher education or a school, correct?
0: They have none. Or very little. And yet I know that they are interested in, it's use as a complement in schools, preschools and schools. So it has gone beyond its original intent. It both includes that. And that's going to always be the emphasis is on the poor and the disenfranchised. Always. That's going to be that emphasis. But how it can complement what goes on in the classroom is also part of the evolving mission that curious learning will, will continue to have.
1: And for you, I, I like what you said, that you're both an advocate and a, crit- and a critic of digital reading. And I think we could probably go on for another full our episode on digital reading alone, I've been following a lot of your work recently, in particular your books and, and the talks that you've been giving. When you say you're an advocate and a critic, what are those opportunities and challenges to digital reading as we have evolved based on this digital revolution?
0: Right. Well, I think that it has never been more transparently obvious to people that Teaching requires a human interaction. Mm. That it is insufficient to just give digital platforms for learning for our children. And the children who miss not only the interaction with their, their fellow students, they miss their teachers. They miss that when it is working well. And of course, there are places and times when it doesn't. But there's nothing more beautiful than the interaction of one human with another. That that The beauty of, of being a true teacher is such an exceptional gift. And it's so... I think it's now becoming so much clearer to people how important teachers are. And if anything, I would wish, wish, wish our, uh, the, uh, the experience of COVID could help us give more recognition to the profession. But I'm not neglecting the real issue here for me, which is the fact that different mediums, advantage and disadvantage, different cognitive, linguistic, and affective processes. And so there's been a lot of research now, even before COVID, that shows us that the affordances, the characteristics of the digital medium are actually not good for learning to focus attention and learning how to consolidate in memory what that information is that's coming into that child's brain. So we have to make these distinctions between what is information that is skin, that is, if you will, shallowly processed, and what is information that gets the full panoply of cognitive, linguistic, and affective processes that what I call the deep reading processes involve. So My colleague at UCLA, Patricia Greenfield, says rightly that there are costs and there are promises made by different mediums and that the digital medium does this extraordinary job of helping us disseminate information, vast amounts of information that we absolutely need in the 21st century, but that the cost, and this is more where I come in, the cost is into the time we need to allocate to the deep reading processes. By that, I mean... The act of making an analogy between our background knowledge and the content of the text. That begins the process of deep reading, if you will. But I don't even want to use the word begin because it is so highly interactive, so so fast in the automatic expert reading brain. It's so fast. So we're making this analogy between what we already know and what is different in the text, and how how we make sense of that. What are the inferential processes we use? What are the deductive processes we use? And then stepping outside the cognitive. Are we able to take on the perspective of that author or if it's fiction, take on the thoughts and feelings of those other characters? This requires what I, in a theologian's term, call passing over perspective taking, which increases the development of empathy within that person. So we're adding this, all these cognitive processes, we're adding these empathic processes. And we're, if we're lucky, we have enough milliseconds to give to critical analysis, which is the sum of all of those processes. Critical analysis allows us to discern the truth. Now, or to refute it. So that's where we're either susceptible to fake news or we're able to discern the difference between what is fake and what is real, what is true, what is not true. Well, the digital device, the digital medium advantages the quick processing of a lot of information, but it disadvantages giving time, allocating milliseconds to the more time-consuming deep reading processes. So on the one hand, we who have to consume and are bombarded by all this information, we have to be able to, if you will, shallowly process. But if it's in the developing brain that isn't making the decision, what is the purpose of this reading? Is it something like my email and I'll do my little skim? Or is it something that I really need to concentrate on? Or is it something that I want to understand the feelings and thoughts of other, Or is it Is it a contract or is it a referendum or is it an assignment that requires my real deep processing? Well, we know from the research that the majority of all of us are now skimmers. Mm. Well, skimmers are not going to get not only pieces of information, they won't have the time to consolidate it at the same level in memory. So the digital, the digital device is Extremely important. And all of us look at, we're, we're, look, Daniela, we couldn't have this conversation without it. There is no binary here. There's no binary. But we have to know that we are not reading at the same level most of the time when we are skinning. We are neglecting we are in, in some tapes absolutely omitting, not just neglecting, we're omitting pieces of knowledge that would help us comprehend at a deeper level, the content. And then there's the whole perception of beauty. Now, all of that, all of that is, if you will, threatened by the screen, screen reading, but there's something else. As much as I emphasize critical analysis and empathy, I don't want to forget saying that, and that was part of why I used Proust in my first book. There's an insight that Proust had into reading in which he said, at the heart of it, the reader goes beyond the wisdom of the author to discover their own. Mm. Well, that really doesn't happen every day. That happens when we are reading at a truly immersive, the deepest level. It's the acne of reading. And that's when we have entered, whether we call it the contemplative or reflective function, we are at a place where we've processed all this information. We have felt what the author felt or what the characters felt. We have inferred the truth or the lack of it And then that leads us to a place, if we're very lucky, in which we leap into our own thoughts. That's the contemplative function. That's the generative function where insight is possible. Well, my worry is that the more we become universal skimmers, the less likely we will use that Contemplative function that's available to us in reading. And what a loss Mm. to a life, to a society, if we become these narrowly processing, we, we process a lot, but we miss beauty
1: and we miss our own insights. Those are really interesting points. And as you were talking, I think we could continue to delve deeper into digital literacy. I'm just going to ask if you'd come on another episode just to to talk more about this and I I think you will. But I have to say this is the best tea time that I've ever had in terms of really delving into these issues. And before we start going further down with digital reading, I wanted to circle us back to what we were talking about as episode as a whole and digital reading is definitely one a major topic and we've also talked about your passion for social justice and literacy and I wanted to end this episode by asking you a few rapid but not so rapid fire questions from colleagues. Now, just to give you a little insight, last week, I was so excited to speak with you that I may have texted... 10 of my closest friends at Winward asking for their thoughts. One of the questions that we had for you, as you're thinking about your work and your career and moving forward, you've talked a lot about your work in policy. So I was wondering if there's one area in education that you'd like to change and you no, know, actually we'll spice it up a little bit. So if you could create a policy platform that promotes social justice and equity through literacy, what would it be and where would you start? And in fact, how would you ensure that reaches the hands of classroom teachers and ultimately students?
0: So I've thought about this. It's not a quick answer. It's you might have a quick question, but it's not a quick answer. But I'll say that it has several essential components. One is a zero to five campaign where all parents around the country are from the delivery room or even the prenatal classes would include an emphasis on three things that are necessary for the development of language and reading and that is that every opportunity but especially every night a parent reads to the child a parent every day talks and elaborates language and uses music whenever possible. There's a great book that's going to come out from MIT Press called "Of Sound Mind by Nina Krauss. And that would be a book that everybody should read. There's so many different things that people should read, but that's one of them. But I would want that campaign. So zero to five, all parents know, read, talk and sing are the light motifs of zero to five. Within that zero to five period, the second thing I want is a campaign. And we're trying to do that in California. And that is for early screening. So that pediatricians at between three and five actually have a questionnaire. Dr. Saya Year from UCLA and I and Laura Reinhard are working on that. But the pediatricians would have their role. Pediatricians who work and reach out and read would be giving well-visit books all throughout this period to parents. So they're reinforcing this read, talk, and sing. And then at five, every single child would have some form of a screener in which we look at areas of strengths and weaknesses that are involved in reading. And we actually have a grant with Office of Special Education to work on that right now. But the teacher's would be trained to understand what the results of those screeners are for first grade teaching, whether it's a child who's at risk for dyslexia or a child who's had language impoverishment in their background. And we need to work on that. The screener would give information to help that first grade teacher from the start change how they teach reading, not as a one size fits all, but as a more targeted set of ways of teaching our children. And the next part would be that all teachers from K to 12 get a course on the beauty, the science, the poetry of reading, how it is learned by the brain and how it is taught in different ways across that K to 12. And they would be also taught about neurodiverse learners so that they are able as the eighth grade teacher or as an eleventh grade teacher says, oh my gosh, we've got to really stop everything and give this individual this kind of work. Sue Sears, for example, works on these middle schools. Maureen Lovett in in Toronto works with her Empower program on the skills that went missing for so many of our older readers. They cannot be neglected. And I would also involve our police department. This might be the surprise. I want every police department to be able to say these juveniles were committing these misdemeanors or even crimes, but they have serious issues. They never learned. And if you look at the prison statistics, you see how many of our individuals, especially in JD, have reading challenges, learning challenges. They were dropouts, really, Mm -hmm. in fourth grade. We can never let that happen. So our police departments have to be involved. That's why we're working with the Haskins Law and UCSF people like Lou Gorno-Timpani and others on these kinds of issues. I know um, Yale has a Yale Prison Project. I just met Zelda, the woman who started this. We cannot neglect a single child or youth in this campaign. So I'm going to be working across multiple disciplines. Well, I'm going to be working. I'm imagining this for you, but I better stop a world. Oh my
1: gosh. (laughs) Again, I'm just, I am lost in just the the beautiful poetic words and your impact, the inspiration that you're telling me about. I mean, it's truly inspiring to learn about all the work that you are doing and truly just at the intersection of so many different types of fields and industries. I'm fully invested in this policy platform. I was vigorously taking notes and listening at the same time. To add a little bit to that question, then I have one more question for you. What about any of those policy platforms perhaps make it more important because of COVID? Or is there anything you'd like to add as we particularly moved in a post-pandemic world? I know you're working with a number of groups. I hear your name regularly pop up when we talk about the Haskins Global Literacy Hub. So is there any work that you're particularly invested in as we move into hopefully what we call a new normal or in this post-pandemic world?
0: Well, I'm so glad you said the Haskins Global Literacy because they, uh, a, a group of reading scholars and heads of schools, there's so many wonderful people involved in that. Oh my gosh, Maureen Lovett, Peggy McCardle, Ben Powers. It, I mean, there's so many. It's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful group. But what they are doing, and I'm hoping to be of some contribution to it. But what that's about is that parents and educators during this time can go online and see the developmental epochs and see digital activities that are free and in large part evidence-based that they can use. And I I said Sue Sears a few minutes ago, middle schoolers and, and these older readers are often neglected. Well, we have activities like the Word Builder that Sue Sears and her group at California State um, University at Northridge have done through Office of Special Education. All these activities are there and I would really like people to know about that. I want them to know about organizations like Bring Me a Book and Bring Me a Book Hong Kong in which books are, um, this group from Judy Koch is connected to the Rotary organizations so that they are distributing books in different ways to kids who are living in environments where they don't have books and they have a little copy, and they can choose books. And that reminds me of the work of Leanne Borders, who is working on an app called Bookalicious, in which we're trying to get kids to have choice that inspires the love of reading. And so what they're doing is having sort of like a little avatar, but it helps understand what the child selects. I don't want to use words like level, but what, what's their level of reading? What's their age? What are they interested in? And here is a group of books that you would like. And so the Bookalicious helps promote a love of reading by giving them choice at their level. And it's connected to libraries. It's connected to publishers. So Bookalicious is one. Rally Readers, is another one, another app that's helping children, especially fourth grade on, who have these problems and fluency. And this is one of these amazing apps. Again, I'm saying, you know, digital book, digital book, I'm not excluding anything in our, if you will, the armamentarium of resources that we want everybody to know about. But anyway, Rally Reader is one of the ones that I'm particularly interested in following because uh, fluency, as, as some of your audience knows, has been of extreme importance to me because, think back to the reading brain, has to be automatic enough to add these deep reading skills. And so the more we can work to ensure that children are becoming fluent by fourth grade, the less I have to work with the police department on the kids who really were the dropouts in fourth grade because they were never fluent by then. So there's so many issues that are, uh, Danielle, that are all connected. And I just, I want to thank everybody. You know, everybody I mentioned, I leave too many people out. I just saw the Cox campus and Comer Yates and and Renee Boynton Jarrett who are working on the effects of adversity um, and trauma on learning. There's so many amazing people in this world working on policy, as you're calling it. For me, policy is what you do with what you
1: know. Mm, okay. um, I, ooh, I love that. Yes. And I appreciate you sharing all those resources and telling us about all the people that are doing this work. And again, it brings me back to the thought of integration. How do we integrate the expertise, the passion, the policy, in the collective. Final question, closing up tea time with Dr. Marion Wolf, We have classroom teachers that regularly listen to read. And if they were to join our tea time too, grabbing their favorite cup of tea, well, this is a two-part question, but speaking to those teachers, what would you tell teachers to do in their classroom tomorrow? And what about education gives you hope? Those are our final tea time questions.
0: What I would tell the teacher tomorrow is show off your love of reading and literature and take a pause, whatever time of the day, and just stop and say, we're not going to do a thing this moment, but you're going to listen to a story that I'm going to read to you. And so I want them to do that. And then using that, I would open it up to What are the words in there? How can we learn from those words? And so I would use love as the mode of giving the science of reading to our children. Mm. (laughs) So now I'm going to end the whole thing with a quote from my favorite novelist. So I'm stopping and I'm reading to you. Yay. (laughs) My favorite, I have two favorite novelists. One is Gish Jen. wrote the book Resistors and World and Town and Mona and the Promised Land. She's an amazing, wonderful, wonderful novelist. But my other favorite is a more philosophically oriented one. Gish is is really so talk about social justice. Resistors is about social justice. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. But Marilyn Robinson is my favorite contemplative. Novelist, mm. and she wrote something that was more philosophical. in In she writes works like Gilead. She did housekeeping years ago, Gilead, Home, Lila, and most recently Jack. But she also wrote a set of essays called The Givenness of Things. And in the middle of one of those essays, she wrote something that is just right for today: the greatest test ever made of human wisdom and decency might very well come to this. We must teach and learn
1: broadly and seriously. Ooh. <laughs> I am so glad that you ended with that. Wow. That's <laughs> wow. <laughs> Dr. Wolf, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you for just providing the wisdom, the insights, the stories, the inspiration, bringing the world of reading and social justice and literacy and love and integration, everything, literature to us. It has been truly a gift to talk to you and to drink tea with you. I think it's just been one of my dreams. So I appreciate you taking the time to be here.
0: Well, Danielle, I will never forget receiving, I believe, the first award for research by Windward years ago. And Jay, <laughs> Jay had me and Hugh Jackman and his beautiful wife on the stage that day, and I will remember that I wrote three letters to the Windward community, and one of them was to you, Jackman, and to all those. And I wrote it to him because of his work on dyslexia, he and his wife in Australia. And I want to just almost repeat the same thing. I am grateful to all of you for all the work you do every day. You are putting your tin cup of knowledge up. And when together we put
1: those tin cups up, we are going to change the world.
0: That's my hope.
1: Mm, I love it. Thank you again. And we look forward to seeing all your work and following you and being inspired by you. Mm, I am still noodling over Dr. Wolf's hopes for the educational future. Let this be a call for us all to teach and to learn broadly and seriously. There was so much to learn from these past two episodes, and there's so many resources for further action. So please, please, please read more at readpodcast.org, where you can access my top read bookmarks or top moments from each episode by visiting each episode page on our website. I added a number of resources, and you can also visit Dr. Wolf's website, marianwolf.com, for more information on books, articles, and presentations. In fact, I highly recommend Proust and the Squid as this summer's sunny vacation read. My goal is to continue to connect with and learn from inspiring leaders and advocates in research, and education. If you have any thoughts, questions, or ideas of speakers and topics, feel free to reach out via email at info at readpodcast.org. I also invite you to like, subscribe, and share the Read Podcast with friends and colleagues. Learn more about future events this summer with the Winward Institute by staying connected with us on our website, thewinwardschoolorg slash WI, or on social media. Until next time, readers.